Our scripture is actually from the 10th chapter of Acts today, 19 through 22, 30 through, 34 through 44. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter left and went to the home of Cornelius, the centurion. Then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And then in verse 48, they became the first Gentile converts to Christianity and all were baptized in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Come on, Lord Jesus. Fill our hearts and minds with light so that this day we may hear your word proclaimed with glad and grace-filled hearts. Amen. <clears throat> well, every Easter Sunday, uh, pastor types like me get up in front of their congregation and they say these words. They say, and they proclaim this out, Christ is risen. And then the congregation repeats back one of two things. They either will say, Christ is risen indeed, or they'll say, he is risen indeed. So I'm going to practice this with you just now that you know kind of the routine. Christ is risen. Oh, there you go. Very nice. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Well, all of Christianity hangs on this claim. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul goes on to, as far to say as if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. Now you can argue about whether or not that may or may not be true, but I believe the point is that no single event has impacted the world more than the resurrection. For Christians, the resurrection of Jesus is the central act of human history on which everything else 
um, turns. At the same time, others believe it is some kind of absurd fairy tale, like all of the other absurd fairy tales that you might have learned as a child. And it is understandable why, because if you think about it, all of your experience with death outside of the realm of maybe horror movies is that dead things stay what? Dead. Exactly. That's been our experience. So here's something that is very much outside of our realm of experience. But with Jesus, who Christians believe to be the Messiah, the very Savior of the world, something was both different in his death and in his rising. Pastor Tim Keller reminds us in an article in Relevant Magazine that in the decades before and after Jesus, there were dozens of messianic movements in Israel. And a lot of these movements had messianic leaders who were, who were killed, uh, who died very violently, some very similar to the way Jesus died. But most of these, all of these, after the execution, they quit existing. They, they just failed to exist after um, the leader was gone. Everyone packed up like a... Uh, defeated politicians campaign headquarters you might say and they just went home you know their person lost so they're done they packed it all up and they left of all those dozens of movements only one did not collapse after the death of its leader and not only did it not collapse but it exploded in the course of about 300 years after Jesus's death Christianity spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And today, that may not seem amazing to you because, you know, now this, this sermon will probably be up online later today and you can um, email your friend in Fiji and tell them, hey, there was a great sermon, you should watch this. And they can watch it if they've got the internet. So, you know, it's a little different now. Telecommunications and other things, satellites, all these things make things easy for us to see how a message can transmit quickly. But this was an amazing feat back then because everything was done either in letters, which then had to be written, and then hand-delivered, so they had to walk someplace usually to take them somewhere, or they had to be passed on word of mouth. And any of you who have ever played like uh, whatever that operator game is or whatever, where you tell one person one thing and they pass it down the road, well, you know how well that news travels. You know, it gets all jumbled up. But yet somehow this message stayed true and spread like wildfire. You know, why out of all of these messianic movements, you know, what made the Christian faith different? And, you know, why over 2,000 years after Christ's life, death, and resurrection do billions of Christians still believe that everything we know as reasonable people was suspended in the event in this event, and Christ has indeed risen from the dead. Well, Christians would say it is because of what happened after the death of our leader and his rising from the dead. That makes all the difference. For those of you who have faith in the resurrection without complete understanding, and for those of you who really need some sort of proof even to begin to believe that the resurrection is possible. This morning, I offer you four items to ponder that I hope maybe will help you a little bit as you try to seek um, the truth of 
Christ's resurrection. You know, questions aren't a bad thing to ask. Uh, it just shows that you actually uh, are seeking something. So uh, questions are good. Well, the first proof I'm going to offer this morning about the resurrection is the witness of those who first encountered the reality that Christ had been raised from the dead. So the first people who went to the tomb and saw that it was empty and saw that Jesus had risen were who? Anybody know? And Mary Magdalene or Mary were what? Large, yes, women. I hear some United Methodist women out there reminding me. Women, exactly. And I would say women have been leading the church ever since. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. But during Jesus' day in that culture, it wasn't customary for women um, to give testimony or uh, to share this kind of information. In fact, back in the second century AD, there was this guy who was a Greek philosopher named Celsus. And he was highly antagonistic, that's the word I'm looking for, antagonistic about Christianity. And he wrote a bunch of stuff trying to tell people about why Christianity was a bunch of hooey. That's a, that's a philosophical term, by the way, hooey, just so you know. But one of the arguments that he used uh, that he believed was the most compelling was this. And women, remember, you're why we're here. So I, I value you greatly. This is him talking, not me. Don't shoot the messenger. He said this. This is his big argument. Christianity can't possibly be true because the right, written accounts of the resurrection are all based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. That's what he wrote. And many of Celsus's readers at the time would have agreed with this statement. For them, the very fact that the first eyewitnesses were women was a major problem that called into question the validity of the claim. In ancient societies, you may know, women were marginalized and had little legal status. And their testimony was rarely given much credence at all. But... Do you also see what this might mean as we look back at it today with this knowledge? If Mark and the early Christians were making up this story to get their movement off the ground, they would never have written women into the story knowing that this cultural bias existed. They never would have chosen to record women as the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb of Jesus unless unless you guessed it the only possible reason for the presence of women in these accounts is that they were really present and this is really what they saw the stone has been rolled away the tomb is indeed empty, and the angel told them, the one you are looking for, he's not here. He is risen. The second proof of the resurrection is Peter's transformation and the transformation and passion of early Christians like him. 
You might recall right after the Last Supper, uh, Jesus takes his uh, disciples uh, at night up uh, towards um, the Garden of Gethsemane there, and they pass through the Mount of Olives. And as they do, Jesus stops. And he says to them this, which is recorded in Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. He wanted to have a little chat. He says, you will become deserters. These are Jesus' disciples who have followed him everywhere, who have given up just about everything to follow him. And he tells them they will be deserters. And he says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The disciples missed this part. They're still stuck on the deserters part. You know, nobody likes to be called a deserter. Um, they missed this promise part. Peter said to Jesus, even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, <clears throat> truly I tell you, this day, this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the other disciples said the same thing. Well, later on in Mark 14, we learn that Peter, the one who earlier Jesus had called the rock on which I will build my church, in fact, did deny Jesus three times after being accused of following him by one of the servant girls of the high priest. Verses 71 to 72 highlight Peter's final denier. He, Peter, began to curse. And he swore an oath. I do not know this man you are talking about. And at that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered Jesus' words to him. And he broke down and he wept. But then, listen, this is important. But then, amazingly, following the resurrection, Peter, the one who couldn't even stand up for Jesus to a servant girl, yes, that same Peter, is transformed and becomes an ardent preacher of the gospel and the head of the early church. He was so dedicated to proclaiming Christ's resurrection that eventually he was crucified upside down because he didn't believe he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus by Nero because of his faith. Likewise, the first Christian martyr, who was Stephen, who his job was to care for the widows. And what got him into real trouble was the fact that he didn't just care for the widows in the Christian community, but he expanded that out. He started caring for people just in the general society, and, and the Romans got wind of it, and they did not like it one bit.
Scott and Arthur Jones remind us in their book, Ask, Stephen was part of a community who believed in Jesus and his resurrection so strongly that they were willing to die for him. And I know we as humans can tell some real whopper stories. If there's any fishermen out there, we know that's true. But would you die for one of your fish stories? No, you wouldn't. But these people, these early followers, these disciples, most of the disciples were killed because they told this story and would not deny it. People are willing to lay down their lives for the truth. Most of us are not willing to lay our lives down for a lie. The third proof comes from our scripture reading for this morning. Here we heard about Cornelius, the centurion, who was a Roman officer in charge of a hundred men. That's what that means, a centurion. That's, that's what you are. You're in charge of a hundred men. Who became this first Gentile convert to Christianity because of Peter's proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's not so important that Peter proclaimed it, but it's that the proclamation happened. The words were spoken. Scott and Arthur Jones point out that Cornelius sought out Peter's testimony because he knew that his claim that he had heard about, that if this resurrection was true, it was the most important fact in history. And think about it. Just like when we, uh, there's a crime out there, we go to eyewitnesses who offer the most direct and reliable account of the events that they have witnessed. So Cornelius goes to Peter because he was a witness of the resurrection. And when Cornelius heard Peter's testimony about this resurrection of Jesus, he believed it was true. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and all of those who were there with him were filled with the Holy Spirit and they all were baptized. The proclamation of this good news changed him personally and altered his view of reality. He recognized that he had been saved from the power of sin and death through Christ's death and resurrection and saved for a life that would take on the very character of Christ, focused on love and forgiveness and justice and mercy for all people. It was that strong in him. He couldn't go back. C.S. Lewis in God in the Dock put it this way, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. The fact that I am preaching here to you today and the fact that you are here at least giving me a hearing reminds us that Jesus' resurrection is not only the content of all gospel preaching, but it is also the miraculous means. If there is any hope that any of this message continues to carry down the line, the Christian message of Christ's renewal of all things through the resurrection, if that message can ever go, it's only going to come through proclamation. 
as the preacher proclaims, the Holy Spirit works among us and allows us to hear the word that God is making all things new. And he invites us to respond by joining God in reclaiming and restoring all that God has created. The disciples took the final words that Jesus spoke to them to heart. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that is exactly what they did. These same disciples who had ran away, who were hidden behind closed doors, who had doubted, now moved across the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And it is also what faithful proclaimers of the good news still do today. You know, we don't use weapons of war to get this job done. In God's kingdom, those things have already been beaten to plowshares. All Jesus gave us was proclamation and the Holy Spirit, which opens up the channels of God's grace to flow through. And this brings me to the final proof that I'd like to highlight today. In the resurrection of Jesus, God has given us hope for today and also hope for an ultimate future. Today, a few, uh, very few of you would be here worshiping if it were not for the message of hope that God brings to all creation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The world often appears dark. We might be tempted to despair, thinking everything is falling apart, yet there are still those who hope and live hope-filled lives. Because Jesus conquers the power of sin and death through the cross and resurrection, these things no longer hold foundational power over lives individually or collectively. In Christ's resurrection, God inaugurates his ultimate restoration project for the world, makes his kingdom known, and promises that he will make all things new. All people, all people. All nations, all nations, all things God will make new in heaven and on earth. Because God's ultimate purpose is the renewal of all creation. And we know God wins. We can join Christ and do in the present what he has promised long term in the future. N.T. Wright observes this hope then emboldens action. And we have this hope for today and hope for the future. It emboldens us to action. He writes in his book, Surprised by Hope, which is a great book. Check it out. He writes this. Future hope held out to us in Jesus Christ leads directly to a vision of the present hope that is the basis of all Christian mission. To hope for a better future in this world, for the poor, the sick, the lonely, and depressed, for the slaves, the refugees, the hungry, and the homeless, for the abused, the paranoid, the downtrodden, and despairing. And in fact, for the whole wide, wonderful, and wounded world is not something else, something extra, something tacked on to the gospel as an afterthought, but it is central, essential, vital, and life-giving. It's that part. Sometimes we think, like when we give one can of food to a food drive, and we, get, we do that for a little bit, and then we get despondent thinking, what is this one can? It can't, it can't end world hunger. 
one can, can't do it. So then you, you just start going into this terrible spiral place. And trust me, there's a lot of people that would love to take you there. If you turn on your television at all, there's plenty of people who would like to take you to a deep, dark place. Those people are not friends of Jesus. That can of food is just a can of food. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul writes, My beloved ones, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. One can is not going to end world hunger, you're right. But get over yourself. You're not called to end world hunger by yourself. You are part of the body, the body of Christ. Your one can, your one can, your one can, and all of a sudden people are eating again. We have a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity. All of our work is important. For Paul, as he argues throughout 1 Corinthians, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. God will raise it to new life. Right, writes, what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, Praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, visiting the sick, loving your neighbor as yourself. Those things will last on into God's future. Nothing you do in the name of the risen Christ do you do in vain. It all matters. And I know people are trying to tell you that the world's fallen apart. And they're the ones that can fix it all. We have our part to play. We're in this together and Christ is the one who gives us the power to do it. These activities are not just making the present life a little uh, less troubling, a little more bearable until the day we leave it all behind. They are part of what Wright calls building for the kingdom. We don't make the kingdom happen. God builds the kingdom, but we're building for it when we unite with him and we choose not to let other people tell us that our world is full of darkness. But we are willing to say, no, that darkness does not have the final word. You're not going to divide us up. You're not going to put us against each other. You're not going to give us a vision that is so foreign to what Christ is bringing forth in his kingdom. We're not going to accept that. The message of Easter, the truth of the resurrection, is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ. And now you are invited to believe or to be involved in it and to belong to it. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says it starts with your mind, the renewing of your mind by the Spirit of God. There are different stories out there 
this story brings light and brings life even out of death. And we've all seen it. We've all seen it. You can choose to see the world through the eyes of a risen Savior. And that's what I encourage you to do today, is see the world through the eyes of the risen Savior. Look around. There is evidence of Christ's renewal all around you. Pay attention to the moving of the Spirit and live into the new life that Christ has for you and for all creation. You know, God loved you enough to rise from the dead so that you could have life and have it to the full. Go forth and live, Easter people. Go forth and live. 